Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, welcome to another edition of Word in Your Ear. And this one is about a proper unsung hero who signed or helped shape the careers of a, a huge number of really, really wonderful acts and, and never quite got the, the credit he deserved. Acts like the Bonzos, Beefheart, and J.J. Kale, Hawkwin, Nick Lowe, Costello, Creed's Clearwater, Feel Good Stranglers, Stone Roses, to name just a few. And this is a man with a charmed, charmed life. And uh, uh, really, and it's an extraordinary story. And he was, of course, Andrew Lauder. And our old pal Mick Houghton has just written this terrific memoir about him called Happy Trails. Mick, very nice to see you. And you too. And so firstly, Andrew was more, I mean, he's not that widely known outside the music industry. It's partly why we're doing it, actually. But he's, he was more than just an A&R man. He didn't sign these groups. I mean, he, he was involved in all sorts of other areas that contributed to their, their success, wasn't he? he? He was. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that's part of the role of the A&R man. It, it, the A&R man doesn't just sign bands. He, he, he takes them from, right, you know, from signing them to recording them right through to, you know, to marketing to records at the end of that. And no, but in his way, case, you know, graphic design and all sorts of stuff, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think Andrew yeah, Andrew was aware that, to some extent, a lot of his bands, they weren't fashionable bands. And, um, you know, if they didn't get played by John Peel, nobody was going to know they existed, probably. Yeah. So he had to come up with ways of, I guess, of, of bringing them to people's attention. And one of those was to have great album covers, brilliant album covers. Um, and the other one was, I think, to come up with ingenious marketing ideas. And in that in particular, he was well ahead of the game. I mean, if you look at some of the things that came in with the new, with new wave independent uh, record labels, and particularly Stiff, I mean, Andrew had been doing those kind of things for years. But, um, you know, I, th- I think it was just any way, any way that he could that was kind of relevant to that band. He, he would try and find ways of, of getting people to, to be aware of them. We should make it clear, is he's not in the past tense, is he? No, he's not. He's, am I, am no, I no, he's, <laughs> but he's just very publicity shy. <laughs> yeah. He's incredibly publicity shy. Um, 
I mean, Richard Williams has, has written a, a lovely forward to this book. And at one point, Richard was a, an A&R man himself, and he said that Andrew was the only A&R man that he knew that really, you know, didn't want to get noticed himself. He, he was he wanted to remain in the background. And um, and the other weird thing with Andrew is that, that, that he would he, he it's like he would say things to me like you know the only thing that matters to me is the music, which sounds like a terrible cliche. <laughs> yeah. Actually, true. You know, he, he really, he was really so. It was just totally genuine in that way. And um, you know, it's an, another thing that Richard points out is that you know, in a long career as an A and R man, he never once, I think, had a, a producer credit. He wasn't interested in producing, and he never slipped a kind of dodgy self-written B side. Yes, <laughs> no, absolutely. For Bob, so he was, he was. Yeah, he was a real deal. They said. We and should tell the story. Alive. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We we should the, 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 the early on this the story obviously of, of him coming down the age of sixteen and getting a job in the music industry. Just tell that story because it's absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? He just turns up, decides to go to the music papers and just knock on their doors. Nineteen sixty four. See if there are any jobs. Yeah, but I mean, basically, I mean, he left school at sixteen, and and he knew then that basically he, he wanted a job in the music industry. He didn't know how or what that entailed, but he just had this dream of, of um, somehow coming to London and getting a job in the music business. And, and, and part of that was, he was partly inspired, you know, by Andrew Oldham. Uh, I mean, Andrew Lauder, this is, went to Marlborough School, public school, which was the same school that Andrew Oldham went to. I mean, I think Andrew Lauder arrived there the, the term after Andrew Oldham had been uh, expelled. And, and, but in the time that Andrew Lauder was there, you know, the whole beat group, the whole Mersey beat thing kicked off. And, and you know, then the R&B boom that followed. And, and Andrew was, you know, totally obsessed with that. And, and uh, um, at school, I think the thing he was best known for was, was being the guy that had this amazing record collection. And you could go to the the day room, and he'd play all these records. And if you wanted to know something about music, you went and asked Andrew. He, so, um, so he left school or asked his parents to leave. You know, convinced his parents that he should leave school at sixteen, and he left Marlborough, oddly enough, with the same one O level that Andrew Oldham, and O level in English literature, I think, which is very useful. Um, and I think he used Andrew as an example throughout 1964, well, after he'd left school, saying, you know, look what this guy's done. You don't need credentials to be in the music business. You just go down to London and get a job. He was right. He was right. Yeah, because yeah, he just literally knocked on the door and he said, got any jobs? And, and that afternoon, got a job. Was it at Southern Music yeah, Publishers? He, he says he didn't even, he said he didn't even realise he'd kind of, he, 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 like you say, he thought, I can write a bit. I know a lot about music. And he did go to Melody Maker, couldn't get him through the door, went to Record Mirror, there's nobody there, went to Denmark Street, which is where the NME, he had, that was the address he had for the NME, um, and they moved. Um, so he didn't really know what to do. So he kind of crossed the road. And the reason he thinks he kind of staggered in or stumbled into the Southern Music publishing offices was that the window had a as a display of pretty things, sheet music. He was a massive pretty things fan. So he kind of wandered into this office 
and just blurted out, oh, I'm looking for a job. And the guy there said, well, that's really odd because we're, you know, we haven't advertised, but we're looking for somebody. And within like two hours, he was sat at his desk um, writing out um, sheet music sales for the pretty things and the Rolling Stones, which who were the Southern music represented Essex music. Um, and so he, was, he basically, he'd become an invoice clerk, um, which was an incredibly boring job <laughs> as it happens. But it, it just plonked in the middle of Denmark Street. Which was an incredibly exciting place to be, was it? Regent Sound Studio was just across the road where the Stones recorded their first album. Yeah. I think I mean, on that first day, various group, Clem Cattini and various of his heroes actually wandered into the office, didn't they? Oh, yeah, you couldn't believe it. That afternoon, it's like I say, Clem Cattini was struggling to get his drum kit through the door and Andrew got to help him in. And probably not that many people would have recognised Clem Cattini. In fact, there you go, I'll prove this. I have a, I have a photo of Johnny Kidd and the Pirates here. Yeah. And I, I, was, I was looking at it thinking, which one's Clem Cattini? I think I know. Do you? Because I, I, I didn't think he was in it. I thought I got the wrong lineup. Oh, okay. I thought that it was the guy in the white trousers, centre. I oh, thought. Yeah. I may be wrong. I may be wrong. Yeah. Somebody else. I don't know. I don't, anyway, that's a picture of Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, who actually are a, are, are, a, are a thread that runs through this book, actually. But So, yeah, Clem comes in and... Um, that half an hour later, there's a guy staggering in to, with a big double bass, and that turns out to be Bruce Licorice Locking, who, who was a bass player that um, replaced Jet Harris in the Shadows. So, yeah. you know, I, I think at that point he's he's you know he's wandered off in off the street and got a job, and and all these people are coming in. He's thinking, what's going on? You know, and um, and as the months went by or weeks went by, you know, he, Donovan came in, and it transpires that. Donovan had recorded Catch the Wind in the basement studios at, um, at Sutton. Um, Mike Vernon was producing the Artwoods, uh, who were one of his favourite bands. Um, and, uh, you know, and a month or so later, Jeff Beck came in and said, you know, Eric's left the Yardbirds and I've just, I'd just taken over. And, and I think two weeks later, you know, Andrew was at the Marquee and saw the first gig that, Eric, that um, Jeff Beck played with the Yardbirds. That's one of the really interesting things about this book is that it, it goes from um, those days when music was a, was a village, wasn't it, really? It was a village around Denmark Street. It, there were about 40 people involved in it, largely. Oh, yeah. They all, all played in each, each other's bands. Elton John was was working down the street, wasn't he? Oh, a bit Reg Dwight as he was, you know. Well, that was, Mil, I mean, Miller's music was actually opposite. It was either above or beneath region sound. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the two of them would, um, and it wasn't part of Andrew's job, but sometimes you'd have to take all the sheet music to the post office, you know, with, with, in, in a sort of post, um, a railway porter's uh, trolley kind of right. thing. You know, and he'd, he'd be kind of rushing to get to the post office, and, and Elton John would be running down the other other side of the street with, with the same kind of trolley, with it, filled with Mills music, sheet music. <laughs> it, was, it was an incredible street. I mean... You know, you had agents there. Most of the publishers were there. Um, Larry Page had an office there. Um, even, which I loved when I found out, even the guy that sold the newspapers, whose name I've forgotten, um, basically had, had been in the in the Arsenal's winning cup winning, cup winning <laughs> side, but they kind of 
was down on his uppers because he, 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 he developed a bit of a gambling habit. And there he was selling the newspapers that he used to pick, pick the wrong horses from. So it, it was just full of all these characters that... So, so he kind of scuffles around, does he? He does all kinds of things. He gets involved in managing bands, all kinds of things, learning all the time. But I suppose the key thing is, is when he gets a job at Liberty United Artists, which is an American company, decides it's going to set up an office in the UK. And he's, he's there when they, they place the ad, don't they, in the music papers, saying we're looking for talent. And that produced Elton John and... Um, and Bernie Taupin and so forth, didn't it? Oh yeah, that, I mean that was after that was like six months after he joined, and that ad was actually placed by a guy called Ray Williams, yeah, who who was the the A and R man at the time. And I mean Andrew at the time um, didn't really have a job description. He, he he you know he just he just got a job and it was pretty vague. Um, I mean he was a record plugger apart from anything else. Which, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, it was, it was Ray Williams who placed the ad, and the ad basically said Liberty wants talent. And that was the ad where, you know, Elton John and Bernie Taupin both wrote in, and Ray was the guy that thought, oh, this guy can write music, this guy can write songs, and he was the guy that put them together. It's still an absolutely <laughs> extraordinary, serendipitous thing, uh, that is. I mean, interestingly, um, Liberty actually did demos with Reg, Elton, and turned him down. So, yeah. Well, absolutely. but Liberty is an interesting thing because they they had failed to sign on their own doorstep in San Francisco. You know, Jeff Snapen, Country Joe, and the Dead, Quicksing, the Silver Messages, all sorts of people. So his job really was to try and make them fashionable in the UK. Was to find exciting new groups. Was that right? It, it was. I mean, I, I think the American. I mean, I think Andrew was just really disappointed because he was a. You know, he absolutely loved that. You know, in, in this country, he probably knew more about the San Francisco scene than anybody. He was obsessed with it. So I think it was pretty galling for him that Liberty was signing, well, weren't signing any of those really good bands. But um, I think what happened, you know, Andrew obviously wasn't, didn't really have much to do with American signings, although he did later license Fantasy Records, so he brought Creedence Clearwater to Revival to, to Liberty. But... Um, I think the good, the great thing about Liberty was that the, the guy that ran it, called Bob Reisdorf, um, basically had a really refreshing attitude. I mean, his attitude towards, once Andrew became an r and R man, his attitude was basically go out, find some bands, sign them and sell some records, which is yeah. kind of what it's about. Yeah. Um, but the other thing about that Liberty Wants Talent uh, ad was that Others that applied to Liberty as a result of that include the Idol Race, which was Jeff Lynne's band, the Bonzo Dog Band, and Family. Um, so they all came knocking on the door, and, and they all got signed by Liberty. Um, I mean, Andrew was very disappointed because he worked on the, the first Family album, Music in a Doll's House, only, uh, only, for, only for them to make, you know, they did one single with Liberty, and then they went off and signed to Warner Brothers. So he he was responsible for that album for for, for, for you know, the artwork and the label copy, and then the carpet was pulled for under. So um, the, the biggest success of that loss was the Bonzos, wasn't it? Which is the most unlikely. Oh yeah, yeah. kind of success. But and and yeah, actually the other the other success was um, his other his. I mean, Andrew, massive blues enthusiast. Um, 
and he was very keen on and he so yeah but obviously they had a number of yeah you know, big selling records top ten singles yeah I mean, I mean, in a way, you know, same as the Creedence, he didn't, he didn't sign those bands, but he had the nails to, to say. Well, he licensed them, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, he had the nails to say, we should release this record over here. Well, Proud um, Mary being a hit over here, would that would not have happened, surely, if he hadn't got behind them? Um, I think it would have happened, but, um, but it, it was just more that if, if where the kind of, you know, the charmed life comes into it and the luck that Andrew seems to have is that he found out through a contact at another publishing house, uh, Burlington Music, he found out that Creedence Clearwater were out of contract. I mean, before it was known, he just found out just, just by chance because he was talking to the guy at, 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 um, at Burlington Music. So he went, to the, he went to the American company and said, um, I think... I think Credence Clearwater no longer have a deal in, in UK and Europe. Can you look into it for us? Um, and they did. And the next day, the, 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 the um, head of international in, in America said, well, we've just licensed the whole label for you. So, you know, that's where the luck comes in. You know, he, he had... Yeah. He, and, and oddly enough, he only knew about Credence Clearwater because he was possibly the only person in this country who... who who, who had who, who had copies of the Gollywog single? Yes, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, he got the worst, worst name, embarrassingly titled. <laughs> no, he got one of those, didn't he, from Saul Zance, who was the man who owned Fantasy Records, when yeah. actually crawls over a stack of records and gets it from. Yeah. Well, one of the things I love about this book is that is the detail, Mick. And you forgive me if I read a bit of this out here. Going, moving forward to, he's involved in the um, Brinsley Schwartz, the the great. You know, extraordinary. When hype was invented. Oh, it's a fantastic story. The story of uh, the plane where they took a plane load of journalists over to um, to New York to see Brinsley. Fillmore East. An unknown group, Brinsley Schwartz, played the Fillmore East. And you've actually got the list of the people who were on that plane. And that's the thing I love. It says you've got Charlie Gillett, obviously, writing for Record Mirror, Pete Frame from Zigzag, Jonathan Green from Friends, Mark Williams from IT. Keith Oldham from The Enemy, Richard Williams, we were talking about earlier, yeah. from The Melody Maker, Richard Neville from Oz, and there were journalists from The Guardian, Evening Standard, Daily Mail, and The Mirror there, plus five, five Melody Maker competition winners, and they're plus ones. Yeah. It's that kind of detail that... I know. But, yeah, and you, the, you, the ones you didn't read out was, you know, there were people there from The Jewish Chronicle. Yes, that's right. And, and I think Titbits and Ravelli. I'm amazed uh, nobody's made a comedy film about that. Oh, God, it would be That brilliant. weekend. Wouldn't it be good? Because they're in a, in a nutshell. They, they're flown out and due to a series of disasters. They just don't quite get to the gig on time, do they? They're being flown oh, out to, well, to see they, this. Thing. He's supporting Van Morrison, I think, at British Force. Oh, and, uh, and they kind of miss the gig, don't they? Um, well, actually, yeah, the, the, the flight was delayed for about five hours in the end. So they basically arrived at the Fillmore just on eight o'clock, which was when Brinsley's were due to go on. So, um, I mean, to be honest with you, I think at that point, the impression I get is that half the people that were on that plane... Were pissed. Were, were so pissed. They could <laughs> 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 didn't even go to the gig, actually, did they? Yeah, they were in New York. They were in New York. They thought, oh, let's just go out of the town, you know. And, um, you know, I think... Um, Actually, one, one I, I, 
one of the things I found, and, and I, when I was when I was just looking through stuff for this, was I found the guest list for that flight. Oh, was, really? All right. And, um, one of the names on it, and I can't believe he was on the flight. Um, one of the names on it was Terry Wogan. Oh God, <laughs> no! Oh, um, which isn't that bizarre because one of the other names on it is it was Jonathan Rouse. Who, who, yeah, who, that would make Andy, sense. Andy Chandler. Yeah. But, um, so we'll never know. Did Terry Wogan actually go on that flight? Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a movie. I'll tell it you, is. it's a comedy film. It's a, it's a great British comedy. That is. That's a great great idea. So Mick, you you were going to dig out some albums. You said you had two, three, a few kind of key albums that that yeah. you had thought told the story. What have you got um, there? Tell us what they are for people who can't see it are just listening. Uh, I mean, in in. In the light of what I was saying at the beginning about coming up with ways to, you know, to get his band's notice, um, I mean, one of them is samplers. I mean, that, everybody did yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And he did, um, he did two uh, essentially blues samplers or blues underground samplers. I mean, one was called Gut Bucket. I yeah. got that. Yeah. That, that was with a pig, with a pig on the cover. No, I don't. Is Hapsash on there? Hapsash, I thought it was, maybe. Um, it's got so. Wine, Women and Whiskey on there by Papa Lightfoot. Can he? Beef Arts on there, I think, isn't he? Yeah. Give me that harp, is it? Yeah. 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 For some strange reason, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band are on there as well. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> they had a name that sounded like they ought to be a blues band. Yeah. yeah. I think you remember that whenever I used to go and visit Andrew, you know, one of the great things about visiting Andrew was he always came, came away with samples of records. Which you did in those days. You know, yeah. There always seemed to be a nitty gritty dirt band in there somewhere. Yes, because yes. they were never popular in this country. Never. Were they? No, never. So, shame, but they weren't. Um, anyway, then there was a Son of Gut Bucket. Son of Gut Bucket. Yes. Um, <laughs> which actually is a bit more underground because it's got Roy Harper on it. Yeah. Band, he's a Dunbar retaliation. Ian Anderson's Country Blues Band. Um, but, um, you know, obviously, Everybody was doing samples then. But one of the things that Andrew did, which, which was slightly different, was, was the Greasy Truckers Party. Oh, right, yes. Uh, and that was an album recorded, where was it, the, the Roundhouse, was it? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It was, yeah, it was a double for the double. It brings it to, yeah. Recorded at the Roundhouse. And um, one of the bands, Byzantium, didn't get to play because there was a power cut. It was during the three days. <laughs> That's but, so 70s. <laughs> But Andrew, Paul Quint, Brinsley Schwartz and Mann all got to play. So you've got this double album that sold for £1.50. And one of the bands that Andrew was struggling to get any, any attention to was Mann, um, yeah. who made two pretty awful albums for the Dawn label before he signed it. And, all um, albums on the Dawn label were terrible. I, sure. I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sweeping statement the hell's good yeah. anyway it, carry on it is it's one of those truths um, so, so you know man with this band that the press hated you know they you know, yeah. were huge in Germany they were big in Germany in Germany they played to like 3,000 people you know they come back here and they'd be in the dog and duck and playing to six people yeah, yeah. Um, and, and Andrew signed them um, he, 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 he didn't discover them so this is where a r men you know Find, find bands in very odd ways. Andrew signed Man because he, he was he went to he went he was looking for a new flat, and the guy that was the guy that was letting the flat was Barry Marshall, who managed Bat, who managed Man, and and the guy was saying you know got round to talking about what do you do for a living, and, and Andrew told him what he did, and Barry goes well, that's funny I'm in the music business too, and I manage this band called Man, and Andrew's meeting up. Yes, I hate that band, you know. And what, uh, but, that, but in the end, you know, they got talking, and um, I think Barry yeah, told him that that was a big band now, but it's a taste. So, he, so basically, he decided to sign Mad, having never seen them play live, um, on the base, basis of a reputation that, you know, they were this fantastic live, live band, who now sounded more like Quicksilver Messenger Service than anything else. Yeah, yeah, they mm. So anyway, so basically he signs them, but within the press, everyone, I say everyone hated that because they were on Dawn. And it was only through the the one track on this album, which was a, a sidelong version of a song called Spunk Rock, that suddenly people went, actually, this band's all right. <laughs> you know? yeah. This is the great coat days of rock and roll, this is. When you had a track called Spunk Rock, you know, <laughs> so, but, I'm back in uh, the roundhouse already, Mick, when you're talking about this stuff. Yeah. Don't what you got the, there. And one of the other great stories about the, the, the roundhouse gig was that because there was a power cut, before Hawkwind came on, everyone had, everyone had to leave um, leave the venue. Um, but even in those health and safety reasons. Yeah. When they, when they all filed back in, there were about 400 more people came in than left, you know. <laughs> but... Um, but um, Anyway, it, it was just—it was just a great, you know. With Man, once that was a success, he then made another live album called Live at the Pageant Rooms, and then he did this. Um, oh, wait, I've got that. Oh, yeah. You know, a gatefold double album, gatefold ten inch. Yes. Um, which is not only Man, but you know, it's also got Ducks Deluxe. Dick Deke Leonard's on there, isn't he? Leonard, Dave Edmonds even plays on it. Um, <laughs> But in terms of gimmicky sleeves, this is my favourite. And I don't know if this is man's 
Oh, is it? Is, is, oh, right, yes. I have to... It's a pop-up, isn't oh, it's, it? can be a map or a pyramid. It's a map of Wales. Oh, yes, that's right. Man's, man's rock map of Wales. Yes. Um, How much would that have cost? Could they have made a profit on that record? No. Seriously. But, Go on. They couldn't have done And this is the thing. I mean, the other band that, you know, probably, been, I mean, I think Groundhogs may have been the most successful album, the band that Andrew signed. Uh, again, most people had no time for them whatsoever. And they were, thought they were just a pretty average blues band. But... Um, I'm not um, having that. <laughs> <laughs> I loved them. <laughs> But, but the other band was Hawkwind, and I mean, Hawkwind had the most extraordinary sleeves. I mean, yeah, they did. Which, which were all designed by this guy called, um, by, by Barney Bubbles. Fantastic. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Um, and I found an ad from the Logie Maker, which gives you a sense of the In Search of Space album, if you can see this. That, yes. That, that was how the album pulled yeah. it out. Um, and, I, and I'd never noticed that on the back, you, you have this, which is a, and add to the ground holes. Um, you can see that. Amazing. I mean, you know, he, it's like you say, they, they must have cost a fortune, these things, you know. But, but, um, but it, you know, I think it was a time that Andrew was so lucky that his boss at UA pretty much just let him get on with it and, and trusted, yeah. his, trusted his judgment. Um, and... But don't you think that was also, the interesting thing is, this is also a time when the record business is a branch of the package goods business. And so, and so people got so excited, if you're a man fan or whatever, your, your excitement was going to the shop, buying that, taking it home, getting it out and looking yeah. at it. You know, it's like people do unboxing videos nowadays on on YouTube, don't they? When they buy a new computer or the new anything, you know, people used to do that, do that with records. That's why there, there was that was quite a good investment because yeah. a man fan wanted a cover that was slightly zanier than the other guys, you know, the Deep Purple or whoever else he might have bought. Oh well, yeah, I, I, yeah, but or even you know, but even the fact that you you, you, know, you just go into a record shop and, and flick through the racks and. and Certain albums would jump out at you. Yeah, yeah. It, it was it was a drama in a record shop. Was, yeah. I mean, the classic case is not one of Andrew Lauder's, but we often think about this. Around about the same time is, is Pink Floyd's "Wish You Were Here," which you ripped off the black shrink wrap, and then you never saw it again. That was the <laughs> drama. You did it once, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And then the record was never the same again. But it didn't matter. You'd done it, you know. Just as he destroyed the banana or the velvet underground. That's yes. it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's extraordinary. Oh. Like, so, moving forward, um, he also he signed Doctor Feelgood. He did. Yeah. Well, Doctor uh, Feelgood a classic example of those groups that he never thought were really going to do anything commercially, but he believed in them. But so he must have been astonished when they actually finished up. Didn't they have a number one album at one point? Stupidity was a number one album. Yeah. Again, Andrew's ingenuity was such that. Um, and, I, and I think he was the first person to do it in this country. They they shrink wrapped the seven-inch single in with the album. Um, and I think that's why, I think they knew it was going to sell, but it, the reason it went to number one was because... Yes, was because yeah. of that, it was. Yeah. Yeah, which a year later, everyone was doing it. Everyone yes. Was, 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 yes. 
with Steph Records and everybody was doing yeah, it. Yeah, and they're yeah. all getting into it. But, uh, but I mean, before that, the other thing he did with Dr. Feelgood, and I can remember being gobsmacked by this at the time, first album in mono. Yeah. You know, Proudly. nobody was putting out records in mono. Yeah. It was like, they just couldn't believe anybody was going to do that. Now it seems just, you know, no, obvious. He, he, he talks about this because apparently Wilco didn't want it to be, didn't want to say that the album was in mono because he thought it was a gimmick. He could get, get with it. I don't want a gimmick. I don't want people to think we're a gimmick band making records in mono. But it, but he had to put mono on it. Yeah, says, yeah. Change description act. You, you couldn't not put it on. Well, that's what he told Walker anyway. So, who, who was quite a tricky customer. Yeah, yeah. What else um, you got there? You got the, the. He was very high ahead of the game with the kind of German electronic groups, wasn't he? Can what? Along before, I mean, that was before the whole kind of craft work. That's right. It? Yeah. Um, no, he was, and. and um, I mean, Cannes another one of those ones where he didn't actually sign Cannes. And the German office of Liberty Records, um, and one of the reasons Andrew was interested in, more interested in the German label than the French label, was that the German office was run by a guy called Ziggy Locke. And Andrew knew about Ziggy Locke because he, he used to run Star Club Records, which put out a lot of, a lot of um, the more obscure Mersey detail. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things about Andrew, he was a real record, you know, you'd say today he's a vinyl junkie. And it's like, um, but he somehow his his kind of knowledge, because he, he knew all these obscure names and obscure connections, it kind of drew him to things that possibly other people wouldn't have even taken any notice of, you know. But yeah. as, as far as the, you know, can and the, and the German bands are concerned, um, like I say, he didn't sign them, but he, he had to now release them in this country. Uh, and at that time, you know, I think Kraftwerk, Tangerine Dream, um, a lot of the other German ba- contemporary uh, German bands weren't getting releases in this country. Yeah. And I think it was until Virgin came along in, um, in 1973 that they, they put out things like Faust and Tangerine Dream. Um, and he, he kind of broke that open. The whole, the whole, he broke open the whole idea that basically, you know, German music wasn't you know, something of Eurovision. You know, that, that you know, he kind of, you know, bands coming from Europe were, with, you know, were kind of respectable. Certainly, you know. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the weird thing I find with Can is that after, after the first album, which had some basis in rock music, I mean, they made consistently kind of weird albums that people, and I know that people of my generation didn't really get them. No. It, it was a generation after. It was. Yeah, it was true. For whom those albums were sort of like, I've got the can album. It wasn't the Beatles generation, was it? You know, yeah, it, it, yeah. It's funny, people like John, John Lydon and uh, a lot of the kind of yeah. punk rock yeah. people were just yeah. obsessed with the work. Marky e. Smith, I think, really loved them, you yeah. know. You know, people like, I mean, Julian, Julian Cope, Mary Julian Chan. Cope, exactly. So it was, it was that generation that, that got, in fact, one guy, Andrew didn't say this, but a friend of mine who, who was at, um, in marketing at UA told me that Cam were the only group that when they came over to support the album, if they toured, they sold less records. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I, mean, I don't know if you ever saw them in, in those days, but nothing, you had nothing to prepare. It was, it was, you know, the only 
they only promoted the records by actually getting up on stage and playing yeah. something. It, it bore no resemblance to what to the record. Um, and, and now we get that, and, and, and now everyone they're so fated now. But, but a lot of what he did was sort of evangelism, was because he put out, uh, you know, the JJ Kale records, John Prine records. Buddy guy Johnny Hooker, people just he really liked, didn't he? And yeah. just uh, licensed in this com- in this country. Yeah, and, I mean, that, and must have contributed to the success of JJ Kale here. I, 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 yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think I think when he put the JJ Kale album, I don't think he'd made an album for about ten years. Yeah, that was later, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, and he did because, he because put- the thing I'd forgotten that the, well, I never knew actually that this book reminded me of or told me about was just. All the other stuff that Andrew Lauder did, other than United Artists and so forth, which is, you know, obviously Radar Records is involved in, and Silvertone and Demon. And Silvertone and Stiff, he was involved with, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. Oh. I mean, Demon and Edsel, I mean, he, he, he was, a lot, I think, along with Ace Records. And to some extent, Charlie, although Charlie didn't have the quality control to their albums. No. He really, he really, I think, championed the idea of, a, a catalogue and, and making putting out reissues of albums that that weren't just cheap throwaways that, that you know where you you paid attention to the best audio the artwork was great you had yeah you had the sleeve notes but demon um I, you know i think you know nobody's really done that before you know and andrew had actually been doing that we actually did that at United Artists. Well, they're legendary masters at United Artists. They, you know, Eddie Cochran and Fats Domino. And also that, because there was a guy, Alan Warner, wasn't there? They used to do those things, the golden age of the Hollywood yeah. musical, and which were yeah. huge. Oh, and I they mean, were, the, the one I remember most was the golden age of Hollywood, which had a pop-up of Bar, uh, Busby Barkley dancing. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, wonderful. But, but Andrew was doing stuff as well. I mean, Andrew did this, which was in, in United Artists. Oh, right. Did. Yes, Mercy Beat, yes. Mercy Beat. And, and this as well, Beat Mercy, um, which is kind of like an English nugget. It, it was yes. basically the, the non-Liverpool groups in the Beat era. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and I particularly, I particularly love this record. I want to love the record because the sleeve is fantastic. But, I mean, the detail yeah, in terms of what... Uh, the record shop looked like at that time. It is fantastic. But this was the, the clothes. This was the first album that I did the, the sleeve notes for um, and the research for. So um, it's close to your heart. Close to my heart. You know, as is Andrew, you know, because Andrew was somebody that when I met, you know, when I first met him, um, I went into what is now about a legendary office. He had it, you know, so this was in 1970. And he walked in there, and the walls were just covered in psychedelic posters from the Avalon Boardroom. Which people would never have seen in those days, would they? They were British yeah, people. Yeah. Um, but I think the thing I remember that really got to me was that, apart from the, the, the number of the records he had, which I was totally jealous of, was there was a shelf with um, all these kind of reel-to-reel tapes. And you, you, looked, you, looked, you looked at them and looked down the spine. And it was like Quicksilver Messenger Service and Moby Grape and The Grateful Dead and The Charlatans. And these are all unreleased live recordings by, by these bands, which is so commonplace now. But, it's, um, it's all, yeah. it's all you, you think, record store day and all that stuff. 
would be inconceivable without what Andrew Lauder did. <laughs> yeah. You know, and all that stuff seems like quite commonplace now. Yeah. yeah. At the time, it wasn't. You know, because uh, there were other record companies who just didn't do that st- sort of stuff at all. You know, yeah. records came out, they sold for six months, and then they just disappeared, didn't they? You know? yeah. yeah. No, he, he really did. You know, he was... It, it sounds corny to say that you know he was in it for the music, but and, and I think that's an example I can think of that is that um, you know in nineteen seventy one when the Fertile Little Feet album came out and Warner Brothers for some strange reason chose not to release it, yeah. he, he bought copies of it to give to people. Yes, <laughs> you know you go and see Andrew, and he, he would never try and hit you up to go and see his band or tell you how great one of his records. Yeah, he would just—he'd be talking to you about, like, hey, about little feet or <laughs> yeah, yeah. Townsend bands or whatever. You know, he—he's he, he, quite remarkable, and he—he he is completely unsung. You know, um, he is, and he—he's he's, part of the music business anyway. You know. And it's part of the foundation for so much of the of the kind of culture of rock, rock music now, isn't he? Of you know, the idea of the independent labels and the samplers, and you know, he was—he was a big part of all of that. So, yeah. so he's not doing this interview, <laughs> Mick. He's so he's down in Devon, is he? Or no, no, he, he, no, he moved. He moved to France in in um, oh, right. two thousand eight. Right. Um, no, he basically retired. He retired in I think about yeah around then two thousand or so, um, and um, and it's funny like, he he runs a. He runs like a wine shop and, and sort of local produce shop. Oh, this is perfect. This is what yeah. I imagine with yeah. Hapsash and the coloured coat playing on a, <laughs> a, a yeah, solid, yeah. an old, old uh, kind of psychedelic posters on the wall. <laughs> yeah. No, well, he has the posters, but the thing is, he has a rack of, you know, the, he has a kind of rack of records that he sells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's all kind of like John Lee Hooker and Jefferson Airplane and Hapsash. Oh, that's floor. so brilliant. So people are going there to buy cheese and they've got no idea that the, the man behind the counter is the... Uh, yeah. and, and they might, Hawkwind. <laughs> yeah. They might flick through the record thinking they're yeah. some kind of latest pop hit, but yeah, there'll be a Hawkwind, like a Hawkwind album. Well, if you, if you don't know the story, you ought to get yourself acquainted with it. Happy Trails, Andrew Lauder's Charmed Live and High Times in the High record times. business. In yeah. the record business. Yeah. It's... Uh, it's fantastic tile. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.